pick up one of the Operation Christmas Child boxes, then please do so from the info desk. And, uh, and then you have to get them back here by next week, or you can find another uh, drop-off center by Googling it in town, and uh, they would be more than happy to help you with that. So uh, you may hear in my voice I'm struggling a little bit. It's been a bit of a nasty week. And uh, so I would appreciate your grace as I, uh, my voice might again sound like I'm going through puberty as a 14-year-old. Oh, puberty, sorry. Um, that catching, and uh, I'll, try and, uh, I'll try not hit anybody on the second row. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm worried. Okay, takes jacket off means business. Let's grab our Bibles, please, and turn to Hebrews 11, and uh, we're going to get there in just a second. Let me just give you a recap. First of all, I highly encourage you, if you have not done so, to listen to the two previous messages uh, which this is based on. The reason being is that we actually approach some interesting questions in life in a way that maybe you've not uh, heard them before in a life-changing way, pretty provocative. They are certainly worthy of discussion around a dinner table or in community group. Um, and I started two weeks ago by asking that I said perhaps the most fundamental question that we can ask as human beings is the same question Jesus asked right at the beginning of John, which is, what is it that you want? He did not ask, what do you believe? He did not say, well, what is it that you think? He wanted to know what that person's deepest desires were. And we dug into where the scripture says that depending on our desires, our desires, listen, drive us, they shape us, they cause us to make decisions on a subconscious level, they cause us to look at life in a certain way, through a certain lens, that regardless of what we say, that actually what we really truly want emerges out of what we do and what we say. And it's clearly visible to those people around us. And so as parents and as brothers and sisters and friends and as husbands and wives and whatever relationship we're in, it's very important that we address this idea that what we want actually overrides everything we are. And so God sets up this, uh, this, this kingdom, this alternative to our culture that says this is what you've been created for, this is who you should be, this is what you should be thinking, this is how you should be living, and our culture presents a counter to that and says no, this is what you should be doing, this is who you should be. And last week we talked about the idea of telos. And telos is the good life. What is it that we see that we think if we could just get to that kingdom, if we could just be that, then we will find happiness. We will thrive. And we work towards this good life. And and this good life is actually reinforced and molded in our lives by our habits. By what we do on a regular basis actually changes our future telos. And I gave an example um, of how as parents, depending on how we brought up our children, we've presented them a telos, a good life, and said this is what is most important. We might say, well, Jesus is most important, or church is most important, or this kind of life is most important, but by our actions and our example and our daily rhythms and habits, we actually either reinforce that or we negate it. And by negating it, what we actually do is reinforce this other idea. This is the real good life, 
that in turn molds them as young people. And so our good life, our telos, is hugely important. It's wildly influential in our lives. It is the difference between what we think we are and what we actually are. And so we live in a culture that says, well, you are what you think. And we discussed this a couple of weeks ago, where actually that is not true. And it's easily proved it's not true, because I know the right thing to do, and yet I still continue to do the wrong thing. So knowing something to be right does not actually bring life change. Life changes, life change comes from changing our telos, our ultimate desire, our end goal, our kingdom that we're approaching. So depending on what that is, actually results in significant action in our life. And our habits, rhythms, uh, and I said liturgies, actually uh, mold and shape our telos. So the smallest thing like having a cell phone, the regular habitual checking of a certain app or a certain lifestyle can actually present a certain lifestyle to you, a good life that unless you have that, then you are not going to be satisfied. And it molds and changes us. So this week, where we're coming is actually to this next step because I left you last week saying this. Take a liturgical audit of your life. Have a look at what habits, rhythms, practices you have as an individual and as a family or as an employer or as a friend or a brother, a sister, a husband and wife. Look at what those habits look like. What is it that you do on a daily basis that maybe you've not even considered how powerful they are? Because habits are not something, listen, habits are not something we do. Habits do something to us. So it's important that we open up our eyes and look to see what those rhythms look like on a daily basis if we're actually going to see change happen, if we want to align our lives with where we believe as Christians God has intended us to be. So this week, I set a good example, uh, I hope, by actually taking a liturgical audit. And I wrote down, so far, 25 things that I do on a regular basis that reinforce a telos that I know is not godly for me. A certain way of thinking, a certain drive, a certain goal that I know has been planted inside of me from a culture that I have grown up in that is countercultural to what God's best is for me. And so what I started to do is I actually wrote down Alar Jonathan Edwards in his resolutions and he wrote down, I resolve. I wrote down, I resolve not to think this way or not to respond in this way because I noticed that there were habits and rituals and rhythms in my life that I was taking part in habitually that was reinforcing a certain thought or a certain telos that was ungodly that was actually making me miserable. So there, we, there, we, there we, we find this audit coming about through certain practices. We need to sit down and we need to take this, okay, Lord, what is it in my life that does not belong? So today what we're going to do is I'm going to show you how it is that God actually brings change to our telos. How it is that he brings change to our habits. Because over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some things that really are fundamental to who we are. Which is why I let it slip that next week I'm talking about money. Because if you really want to see what somebody's telos is, what their good life is, what their hope and dream is, look at two things. Look at their bank account and look at the way they use their time. 
Those two things actually reveal more than anything where our heart actually lies. And Jesus said that. If you don't believe me, he said it. You can take it up with him when you see him. Which for some, maybe not that far away, the way I feel right now. But, you know, it's, it's something that is very important to talk about. And I would be doing a disservice to you if we did not talk about some of the fundamentals that actually drive us. So turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. I want to show you, we're going to, what we're going to do is we have an end goal. I have a telos for my sermon, The Good Life. I have a telos, and we're just going to kind of go outfield a little bit and do a bit of an end run to get to, to, get to the goal there, okay? So uh, we're going to do a bit of a Valencia if you follow Manchester United. Hebrews 11, verse 13. There was a lot there in the first five minutes. I'm aware of that, but I spend a lot of time teaching on it in the last two weeks. So I would encourage you to listen to those online. These, who are these? These all died in faith. This is the classic faith passage. We've got a lot of work to do today, so I hope you've got your journals ready because we're going we're gonna to go quick. We're going to go really fast. Uh, these all died in faith, not having received the promise, but listen, think telos, think good life, think kingdom. Having seen them, they greeted them from afar, so they acknowledged that there was a better good life. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, that they were countercultural, the way that they should live was countercultural to their culture because of this thing that they had seen from afar. For people who speak thus made it clear that they are seeking a homeland. I love that picture. Our homeland is different. We are strangers. We are pilgrims. If you're a Christian, we do not belong here. We have a different homeland. Isn't that beautiful? And sometimes we ache to be there. We ache to have that which we know is coming. We want it now. And that's, that's beautiful. But they seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, if they had just been dwelling on their culture, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, watch, they desire a better country, a better telos, a better good life. A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So here we've got a group of people in Hebrews 11 that have learned to do what I am trying as a, as a pastor encourage us to do, which is to have a different kingdom, a different aim. So we're talking about worship. In other words, what is your idol? What is your God? What is it that you worship? What is it they worship and how did they get there? Because they lived content. They lived happy. They lived peaceful. They lived joyful. How did they do that? We're going to look at one particular person in this passage that we're going to carry on reading in a second, and that is Abraham. And we're going to look at Abraham, perhaps the greatest test that Abraham goes through. And I'm going to show you how God uses tests to actually bring us closer to a habit and a rhythm in life which brings us to a good life. See, our teloses, our good lives, our gods, our idols, that which we worship, are changed through testing. I want to show you this. That's where we're going. Okay, through testing. So first of all, I want you to see, number one, tests are inevitable. 
We talked last week about how the storms come against the house, whether it's on sand or if it's on rock. They're going to come. Tests are inevitable. And the Bible, all through the Bible, we see Scripture showing us that God uses tests. He tests His people. So write this down. This, this, is, this is why. Okay. First of all, number one, tests are inevitable. Why? Because tests show us and grow us. They show us and they grow us. So this week, when I sat down to write down my liturgical order. It's not because I'm some kind of nerd that I'm able to uh, and analyze myself so brilliantly that I could write down 25 habits and rhythms that are ungodly. The reason I was able to do that is because God has been putting me through a specific test that has allowed me to see myself for who I really am in order to grow me into that which he wants me to be. Otherwise, I would have been blissfully and naively blind. I would have been quite happy, actually unhappy in the ignorance, not realizing that these things were gripping me, that were creating this end goal, this idol, this God that I was worshiping. On a subconscious level, it would have just laid there. But God brought a test into my life that allowed me the opportunity to see myself for who I really am in order to grow me into that which I ought to be. So for that reason, before I can say anything else, we need to be grateful for the testing. (laughs) Yeah, right. Easy said, right? Easy said. Because tests show us our telos. They show us where we are as humans. They show us who we are. And you remember last week I talked about how our culture outside of Christ, they bring us to this point of you need to change and then leave us. All the best with that. Maybe buy this book or listen to this series or do something. Maybe you'll see some change in your life. God doesn't just leave us hanging. He says, look, here's the problem. Here's what we're going to do about it. But let me tell you, the way you're going to find out that you're hanging is through testing. Through testing. How many of you have had the joy and the privilege of trying to teach a 16-year-old young adult how to drive? How many of you have had that opportunity more than once? See, I, I, I did it once, and then I decided, you know what, no. This isn't worth it. I'm actually going to find the money to get somebody else to do it. So I paid Sarah. No. I, because I remember, I remember making a mistake with Zoe. She sat right there. Um, whereas I thought she was about to do something that apparently she wasn't about to do, and I pulled on the emergency brake. I don't think she's forgiven me yet. We do have programs called like Set Free. Oh. See, now they're not going to listen to anything I'm saying. So tests actually show us and grow us. So that was something that God, oh, dear Lord. But here's the reality. Zoe and Luke, both of them had to go and do, and Amber, they had to go and do a test. And then they give you a sheet, don't they? Here's what you did wrong, or here's, you know, or the blank is good. Or I think, did they check it if you do it right? I can't remember. But this test actually shows you where you went wrong in order for us to grow. So as a background, I was a teacher. Testing, assessment is there in order to show the children, but more importantly, the teacher to show the teacher how they need to adjust their teaching in order to improve. 
You know that. That's what testing and assessment actually is. It gives a teacher a window into the soul of their class. Good teachers use testing in order to grow their children, their, their students. So testing shows us our blind spots. How many of you know you've got a blind spot? Some of us have got more than one. Some of them are so obvious to everyone else around us, we're completely oblivious. Testing reveals the blind spots. Testing shows us our telos. They're not pleasant, but they are effective. And they encourage us to sum them up with strength to change in a way that ordinarily we would be completely ignorant of. So remember where we're going. We want to see how God changes our idol, changes what we worship. And what he does is he reveals what we worship by testing to give us an opportunity to sit and go, where am I going wrong? Who am I? What is really going on? That we wouldn't be able to do that ordinarily without the testing. Testing is difficult, but it's effective. And anyone who has been taught well, mentored effectively, coached enthusiastically, has grown as a result of being tested. That's what it works. That's how it works. Tests ought to grow us. So number two, how does God test us? Well, let's carry on reading in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, verse 17, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had, been, who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Okay, let's, leave, uh, let's put 17, verse 17 up on the screen and just leave it there. Thanks, Jason. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Who he had embraced the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Let's just leave that scripture up there. This is so packed, this one verse. I want you to see something. This alone, this alone I'm praying and believing will actually shift our thinking when it, when it comes to how we see our telos. I want you to notice something about the way that God tests Abraham. And I want you to think about how God tests you. I want you to think about what God is showing you. Because in this verse is the essence of how God tests every one of us. And it's this. I think I actually have it coming up on the screen so we can flick back to this in a second, Jason. A test is when a command to obey seems to contradict a promise. Let me say that again. A test is when a command to obey seems to contradict a promise. See, Abraham had been promised... An amazing blessing. And he'd been told it's going to come through Isaac. And then God tells Abraham, go and take your son and offer him as a burnt offering. There's the test. The test is because mentally Abraham's thinking, hang on a second. How can this be true because of what God has promised me? The true test is when we know God is asking us to do something, but it seems to contradict God's promise to us. So what does God's promise look like? Well, let me just quote a couple of scriptures to you. Not a hair on your head will be hurt, is the promise. And yet you could look at your life and go, oh, hang on a second, if I do this, or I'm going through this, how does this connect with that promise? I will give you more than you can ask or think. But God, you're asking me to give. 
How does this make sense? You see where the test comes in because it seems to contradict what we believe is the best for us. Here's another one. I will meet all your needs according to my riches and glory. Lord, you're asking me to do something. You're asking me to be something that seems to contradict your best for me. So a true test comes when it seems to contradict God's promise to you. When being obedient seems counterintuitive to our happiness, that's when testing comes. That's when we find out who we really are. So let's backtrack and let me give you an example. Let's just, let's just take uh, our children, for example. We have a choice as parents to either parent our kid or be a friend to our kid. <laughs> Amen? There are times when choosing to be their friend and just saying yes is far easier to our peace and happiness as a household than it would be to go, no, are you kidding me? No. But dad, no. Yeah, but everybody else, no. But so-and-so, no. Yeah, but everyone else can do it. Mm, Let me think, no. Am I being mean? Yes. Sometimes that feels good. But then I got, and they slam the door, or if you jack when he was three, you pee in the corner of his bedroom, and you know, you do, just throw, throw that in, because he's 12 now, you can remind him of it. So I have a choice, it's a test. Do I parent my child, or do I be a friend to my child, because it would seem that God's blessing, God's best for me as a dad, is to actually be close and loving and kind and wonderful to my children and, and, and just have a peaceful and happy house. So the test is, am I willing to be a parent to my kid, even though I know that it might create tension? And if I fail the test, what does that reveal about me? Well, maybe my telos is... Actually, I, I, I need my kids to love me in a way that I've never been loved by anybody else. Or I need my kids to accept me. Or I need just whatever that, or I need them to flirt. I just have to have this certain type of child. So we say, yes, yes, yes. Can I do this? Yes, you can. We'll do, I want to do, do baritone horn. I want to do guitar. I want to do volleyball. I want to do basketball. I want to do skiing all on the same day. Okay. Let's test. What's it reveal about ourselves? Money is a huge one. God says, give generously, sacrificially, regularly to the kingdom. There's a test because if I give, then how am I going to do this? God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be blessed. God's going to provide. How is this going to make any sense to me? And so you say, no, you don't give. Therefore, it reveals a telos. It reveals a good life. It reveals an idol. It reveals a worship thing in a way that the test, if you didn't have that test, you wouldn't have. Very, very interesting how God does this. Going to community group or going to church, and, and not, and which means saying no to another activity that seems great and good. But if that activity that's great and good is actually playing into a telos, a good life, an idol, a, a, you know, that you are sacrificing everything else for this one thing, then God will test that. And then what is our response What is our response to that when we go, God, this doesn't make sense. I thought you want me to be happy. I thought you wanted me to be blessed. I thought you want my kids to flourish. I thought you want me to have lots of money. I thought, I thought, I thought, I know the Bible says, 
but I really feel our wisdom, God's wisdom clash. Sex before marriage. But how can something that feels so good be so wrong? How that is a, the cultural blanket of which we live in. How can something feel so good be so wrong? If I feel something, it must be true. That's our culture. And so God says, no. Because here's the reason why. And he actually shows us that ultimately it will bring, it will bring us anxiety and pain and suffering. That sex belongs within a loving marriage and, and, it's, and it blossoms. It's joyful. There you go. decide to go against God's wisdom. Then it's going to result in you developing a telos that ultimately will bring death. Either death now or death in the future. And so our wisdom clashes against God's wisdom because it feels right test and it reveals something about what's really going on i love you jesus you can have everything but not that you can take anything just don't touch that don't ask me to do that do we live life and i've used this example before with an open hand and a and a closed hand. We have closed hands on things that do not belong. And we say, God, you can have everything, but don't touch this. And then we have an open hand on God. Or we drop him whenever it feels convenient in order to extol this. This is what we worship. This is our God. This is our idol. This is our good life. This is what we see life and happiness is about, and it can be children, it can be money, it can be business, it can be looks, it can be anything at all. It can be a classic car sat in your garage gathering dusk. It doesn't matter. Maybe that's a word of knowledge for somebody. I don't know where that came from. But if that is your all, God, you can have anything, but not this. I, I, it could be skiing, it could be the lake, it could be the sun, it could be holidays, it could be anything at all. If you are placing that above, if you are making that more beautiful, more ultimate, more exceptional than God himself, then God will test that and test it and test it and test it and test it. I must have a relationship, I must have a boyfriend, I must have a girlfriend. He'll test it and test it and test it until eventually that becomes open hand and he becomes closed fist. And then you have the same telos as him. And then you have Hebrews 11.13. They would live as strangers and pilgrims in the land because they have seen something better far off. Amen? But this is hard. Because everything inside of us clenches and go, God, not that. You can have anything but not that. So I know the Bible says, but I really feel. So number three... I think it's number three. Why does God test us? I know I've said, well, it's to bring the telos, but let me, let me just draw this up and, and so you can see. He shows us by the test. I've shown you that. He shows us what our telos is. If we are self-reflective, journaling Christians who spend our time with God, then he will show us. If you are not a Christian, if you are still kind of exploring, then you'll get a sense that things are awry. But this is the beauty of Christianity. It doesn't leave you hanging. It points it out. It says, okay, we'll do something about this, and it might hurt a bit. Because God wants to grow us. He wants to change us, and he wants to change us by our habits 
And therefore, he wants to change our desires. Our activity in life reinforces our telos. I said that last week. And so if he can change our habits by revealing our telos, then our, eventually our telos will change. Our God will change. Our, what we worship will change. Look at Hebrew, uh, sorry, Genesis 22 verse 2. Then God said, this, this, is, this got me giddy this week through the coughing. My voice is doing all right, by the way. I don't know if you noticed. Kind of sound a bit like Barry White, but, you know. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. There's a problem with that verse. For those of you who read the Old Testament enough, you'll know what the problem is. And God really reinforces it. And it's this. Take your son, your only son. Ishmael. Ishmael is also a son of Abraham. Isn't he? So why does God say your only son? A.W. Tozer, Canadian pastor, who's written some beautiful books. He said this. He said, Abraham had become the love slave of his son. Isaac had become, listen, his only. Isaac had become his only and Abraham became a slave to that. That Isaac was no longer just his wonderful son. It was your only. Whom you love. God reinforces it. Whom you love. Your only, whom you love, I want that. Life rocked. See, God identified what his only was, what his telos was, what his idol was, what his God was, and he said, I want that. I want all of it, not a partial thanksgiving offering, all of it. I want all of him. Why? Many years ago, I uh, did a lot of uh, martial arts up until about the age of 21. And because my dad was, was really into, uh, he had several black belts. I mean, he could beat you up just by looking at you. You know, just, he was an instructor. And, uh, and so I would go along from the age of seven. I did, I did all sorts of different martial arts. And, uh, and, you know, it was good. And I remember a lot of it because my dad was a police officer. A lot of the kind of training he would do was to police officers. And so I would go along and there'd be these big burly police officers. And he would use me as an example. So this skinny 13-year-old. I remember one particular guy. This guy just seemed like the size of a house. And he, he, said, so, uh, he said, so lie on the ground. I don't remember his name. Lie on the ground. And he said, do you believe? And he said to the rest of them, do you believe that my son, who, and I mean, I just looked like I could get blown away if somebody sneezed. You know, I was just so skinny. I was like 130 pounds when I got married. I'd been abducted by aliens. And I, he said, do you think that your, this, this, this kid can stop him from getting off the ground? And so then being smart and intelligent, police officers thought, ah, there's a trick here. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, honestly, if you'd looked at this guy and looked at this guy, there's no way. And then dad said, with one finger. 
And, I'm, and, I, and I know, I know what dad is doing, and so there's a little bit, mm, you know, and, and there is actually a way of stopping somebody get off the ground with one finger. And I'm not going to show you what it is, but you're just going to have to believe me. There is one way, there's a certain pressure hold that you can do with one finger that will actually stop and paralyze somebody from moving. It's very cool, it's very handy for parenting. Um, no, joking. I'm joking. It's never happened once. Well, more than once. You see, the thing with some martial arts, especially this particular martial art, which is jujitsu with different holds, is that the ability to use somebody's weight against them, that they can come at you or their just sheer size can actually go against them because you can use their own weight against them. Satan does exactly the same thing. He will take that which is good... Because all those things that I listed when I did my close hand, please listen, this is really important. None of those things are bad. Not one. They're all beautiful, good, godly. Even the classic car, gathering dust in your garage, are good things. Skiing is a good thing. Money is a good thing. Business is good. Children, great. Family, wonderful, beautiful, God-given. But if they become the only thing, Satan will use the weight of that against you. And so here's a really interesting test. And when you look at things through this lens, it actually radically changes the way you view things. That, and and Augustine did some really interesting writing on this. He said this, he said, basically, that which you are most anxious about and that which makes you angry is pointing to an idol. What are you anxious about? What destabilizes you? What brings worry to your life. Oh, this is so important. What makes you angry and frustrated and upset? Because I'll almost guarantee you it's because it's pointing to an idol that does not belong. It is threatening an idol that does not belong. That was really powerful for me this week. Because God had brought a test into my life that was creating anxiety and upset and strain and tension. And when I actually sat down and said, what is it I'm anxious about? There was the idol. There was the telos. And it was hidden behind something that, that looked like it could be the idol, but actually it was more what that brought me. What makes you anxious? What is it that Satan is using against you in a really good one-finger jujitsu hold? It can be the tiniest little thing that actually grips you. What are you anxious about? Now, I'm not talking about clinical anxiety or depression. I'm talking about that weight that you feel in your life. Just that overriding cloud that seems to to sit there. Or that something happens and you react. Then it seems that the scripture says that it's pointing to something that is your only So then the question has to be, is what is your only? What is your only? What is your Isaac? What is it that you can have this God, but but nothing, you can't have this Lord? If only I was married. If only I had more money. If only my business grew. If only I got. If only I looked. If only my family, dot, dot, dot. Whatever it might be. If only, if only, if only. Is it becoming your Isaac? Is it becoming your jujitsu hold? Is it becoming the root of your anxiety? 
hugely powerful that when you actually do a liturgical audit and become reflective of your life that God starts pointing out and testing things and in his grace and mercy it's because he wants to grow us he'll show us in order to grow us because these things please listen these things sap energy and strength from us the drive to get it the sadness when it eludes us and the anxiety when it's threatened brings misery and strain and sadness and despair in ways that are inexplicable to anybody else. Because if you say, oh yeah, I'm really worried about this, whatever that might be, then people go, what's the problem? But for you, and it might be not the family, but it's the what you see family is bringing you might not be the money, but it's what the money brings you. It's challenging. And yet it's encouraging because God doesn't leave us hanging, which he says in Romans 12.1, offer your lives as living sacrifices. This act of worship is this continual, you can have that, Lord. You can have that. It's freeing. You can have it, God. You can have it. I don't want it. You can have it. You can have it. It changes our habits. And so when we start talking about giving or parenting or how we run our businesses, it's not so that we can kind of go, oh, the church just wants to get all our money. It's actually to bring freedom. It brings joy. It's a changing of habit. It's a, I'm going to test you next week if you choose to come. It'll be a test. Except it's just like your driving test. You know it's coming, and, but unlike a driving test, you can't avoid it. You can avoid it. Ooh, I don't think I'll be at church next week. Which is fine. There's no judgment. I, I, there's no drive-by guilting. <laughs> but we have these tests. That in itself, the wrestle in itself is a test. Test. What is God showing us? So as we come to communion, here's what I want to point out to you. Why should we obey? Why, why, how do we actually bring this change about? You see, what Abraham did is he looked at the big picture. See, there's nothing more reasonable than obeying God, regardless of how crazy it is. There's nothing more reasonable than obeying God. Because he has this bigger picture. And if you read Abraham's life story, every time... Every time he used his own wisdom, he got into trouble. At one point, he offers up his wife and says, oh, well, she's not my wife. She's my really good-looking sister. Like, okay, Abraham. Like, now, you, we look at that and go, oh, you, man, you're crazy. But what's he trying to do? He's trying to control his telos. He's trying to control his idol. See, if right now, God, if right now obeying God in new habits seems crazy, then I want to encourage you to do it. If it means that you have to bring new habits and rhythms to your parenting, to your giving, then resurrection will happen. Glory will come. If it means that you have to start coming along to church more often, encouraging your kids to go to youth, community group, biblical community, even though it means that you have to make other sacrifices, and I'm encouraging you to do it, not so that we can just fill a room, but so you can live in the freedom of knowing that the telos that you are pointing your family to is far higher and more significant than anything they're going to see on their phone as they're surfing Instagram. Put rhythms and practices in your life. Be obedient, even if it seems crazy. 
You see, Abraham trusted God's promise. Because he said himself, God will provide. You see, deep down inside, even though he was going through this test, he knew that God would not let him down because he'd had experience of it. He'd had experience of God providing for him. And so here's what we do. Abraham looked for a lamb, and we look to the lamb. That a God who was willing to give his only son, his only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life, that he loved us so much that he gave his son to us, that as we gather around communion, that we are celebrating, remembering the sacrificial love that says this, that Glenn, you do not have to struggle with your sin and your shame. You are not able to fix yourself. You cannot deal with all these issues that seem to be crowding into your life. But I can, but it starts here, Glenn. It starts with you submitting and loving and recognizing that he died. Jesus died. God provided a sacrifice. In the midst of my test, I can look to the sacrifice. Just like Abraham, right at the end, God said, here is the sacrifice. God says to us this morning, here's the sacrifice. So I can say, I can obey, even when it seems crazy, because I can trust in the God who gave me the lamb to show me the lamb. I can trust him. I know he loves me. What do I have to lose? Nothing. What do I have to gain? It's beautiful, all-encompassing, ultimate, magnificent, good life. Tell us in the future and now, living with open hands so I can look at my children and go, they drive me crazy. I don't know what the future looks like for them, but I can live with an open hand because he loves me so much. He gave his son for me. He loves them more than I will ever love them. So therefore, I can trust him. Is it a test? Yes. I can look at my money. I can look at my finances. I can look at my business. I can look at my church. I can my friendships. And I can say, he is always faithful He always is loving. He will always look after me. I know he loves me. How do I know he loves me? Because every time I come around the communion table, I hold the symbols of his death and his love and his sacrifice for me. He says, Glenn, that you would not perish. I'll give you my life. So what is it you're anxious about? What are you struggling with? Is it a decentering? of an idol is it a test that God in his love and grace has pointed out to you so that you can say Lord I'm holding on to this too tight I'm just going to let go which by the way in worship this is why this is so beautiful to even actually physically hold your hands up and go Lord you can just have it all there's something powerful in that so as we come to communion here's what I want us to do and We are given instructions in the New Testament that this is to be done in remembrance of Him who died for us. And as Christians, we can come and we can hold. And it's a beautiful symbol because we're actually holding these two elements, representative of what Christ did on the cross. And we can sit and we can say, Lord, thank you. You love me so much. that Even though it feels like my life is caving in. I know that this represents truth. I know this represents 
joy. I know it represents security. I might not feel it right now, but Lord, I know it to be true. Because I'm going to guess when Abraham, there was nothing feel good about that situation. But he had his eye on the lamb. And then maybe God is shaking some areas in our lives and he's testing us. I want you to encourage you Listen to him. And like Some people say, oh, God never speaks to me. Then often it's through testing he speaks to us the most clearly. So as a church, we, we celebrate, we remember his blood and his body broken for us because of what it represents, this surety that he knows and he will never let us down. And maybe that's not your experience. Maybe this is just so alien and foreign to you. I want to encourage you not to take the bread and the juice. This is not for anyone who does not believe in Jesus. This is only for his kids. But the good news is that regardless of the guilt and the shame you might feel over the things that you know are evident in your life and know are resonant in your life, you too can receive forgiveness just by praying. It's so beautifully simple. So I'm going to encourage and welcome the worship team back on and we're going to sing a song as we take communion and I'm going to read some scripture. I'm going to pray for the bread and the wine. Pray over what you've heard this morning. And I encourage you in, just in the, in the song to come and get some bread and juice. We've got some stuff at the back as well. And in your own time, I want you to just sit and just worship. Maybe you just hold it for a bit and you just think, What is my good life? What is it I'm worshipping? What is it that God is showing me this morning? And you can literally offer it back to Him. It's beautiful. Let's pray.